0: All right, folks. Here we go. I don't, I don't want to yell at you guys, so I'm not going to yell at you. No, I'm not going to say that. Mike, you, when you preach, you can tell everybody to sit down, okay? <laughs> sit down. Yeah, you'll be everybody's favorite. Uh, hey, welcome back from intermission. Glad you're here. Good to see you. This is going to be fun this morning. Uh, We get to do something kind of special at the close of today's service. I don't know if you guys have ever ordained anybody before, but you're going to do it today. So you can go home and write that in your journal if you want to, that today you ordained someone. But we'll get there, okay? That's what these chairs are for. I'll talk about it. But before we get there, we need to finish Mark chapter 5. That's my commitment that I made to you, that we would spend three total weeks in Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. We started that process the final week of June. And just by looking at you today, a good number of you weren't here then, so that's okay. Uh, Last week, we were back in chapter 5. We were looking at kind of the middle four or five verses, looking at the reaction of the crowd and the townspeople in the Decapolis, this region of ten cities that Jesus visited. Today, we're going to wrap those verses up, and we're going to take a particular look at the man whose life was changed in this story. If you don't know who I'm talking about, that's okay. We're going to read it. And I think immediately it'll become obvious to you who it is that we're kind of making our point of emphasis on today. So what I want to do is read with you now the first 20 verses of Mark chapter 5. And then we're just going to talk about it for maybe 15, 20 minutes. And then when we're done with that, I'll tell you what we're going to do next. We're going to ordain somebody, and I think you're going to enjoy that process. Mark tells us the story went like this. That Jesus and his apprentices came to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, to the country of the Gerasenes, or the Gerasenes, depending on how you want to say that. If you don't know where Jesus has been, he's been on the other shore of the Sea of Galilee, which is a large body of water, at least for where Jesus is from. We would probably call it a big lake, but they referred to it as a sea. Jesus had been moving around the outside edge of the Sea of Galilee, doing some ministry. His primary home base is the city of Capernaum. It's a city he's going to go back to, uh, starting in just a few verses after we're done today. But he left Capernaum sort of suddenly Didn't give his disciples a lot of explanation. He simply said to them, let's get into a boat and let's cross the sea. And they, like good disciples, said, okay, let's do that. Sometimes they question him, but they usually don't. In this case, they did not question him. In this case, they went along with him. On their way over, they were struck by a windstorm. It happened fast. Uh, as you guys know, you live here in Anchorage, most of you, when the wind comes, there's no warning. I mean, you almost don't know until suddenly the side of your house is shaking. And so this windstorm hits, these career sailors perceive that this is a very dangerous situation to be in. So they go and wake Jesus up and they're like, we're drowning, Jesus. I mean, I don't even really think that they woke him up to ask him for help. I don't, think they're, they don't, I don't know that they were processing, he can calm the storm. I think they just thought he might want to know he was about to drown in case he wanted to try to swim or something like that. He gets up out of the boat, he calms the sea, they finish their voyage over the night, and then we arrive here at verse one of Mark chapter five. This is what they've just done. This is the sea that they've crossed, and this is the country that they've come to. Let's keep reading in verse two. When Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met Jesus out of the tombs, so now we know that there's tombs, a man who had an unclean spirit. and You may not know what that means. Mark's gonna tell us pretty soon. The man lived among the tombs, and no one could bind the man, could tie his arms or feet up anymore, which implies that they used to try to do that, and they haven't been very successful. Not even with a chain, because the man had often been bound with shackles. You can think of like handcuffs and chains. But he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when this man saw Jesus from afar, he ran toward Jesus, and he fell down in front of him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus? Like, why, why speak to me? Why talk to me? What are you, did you come for me specifically? He knows Jesus' name is Jesus. He goes on to identify who Jesus is. He calls him the son of the most high God. And then he says, I beg you. I beg you, Jesus, in God's name, do not torment me we don't know exactly what's going on in the mind if you will of this demon but it seems that when this demon encounters jesus the son of god the demon expects to be tormented expects to be punished expects to pay the price for the wrong and evil that it's done and so in the midst of that pleading he kind of begins to negotiate with jesus we find out in verse eight the reason why the, the the demonized man has been running toward jesus is because jesus has been shouting at him saying come out of the man you unclean spirit Jesus asks the man a question. He says, what is your name? And the, the, the man, the, the demons speaking through the man say, my name is Legion, for we are many. So we're not dealing with one evil spirit. We're dealing with many evil spirits oppressing and attacking this man's life. And then, here's the negotiating point, verse 10. He begins to beg Jesus earnestly, pleading with him, to please not send the demons out of the country. Now there was a great herd of pigs that was feeding there on the hillside, And the demons begged Jesus, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter into them. And so Jesus gave them permission to do that. And the unclean spirits went away from the man and entered into the pigs. And the herd of pigs, which numbered about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea, and they drowned in the sea. Now this is where we were last week, the herdsmen, the people of the city. Verse 14. The herdsmen fled, and they told what they had seen in the city and in the countryside. Basically, anybody that they met, they stopped and said, You'll never believe what happened this morning to all of our pigs, not just some of the pigs, all the pigs. And people who heard this came to see what it was that had happened. They couldn't believe it. We talked about last week, the first three of the five stages of grief show up in this passage. People are, they they can't, they deny that it's even real, and so they come out to see for themselves, and then they become angry, and then they begin bargaining. The story goes on in verse 15. They came to Jesus. When they get to him, they see the demonized man, the man who had been cutting himself with stones and shouting out in the night, living in the graveyard, and he was just sitting there. And he was clothed, which is notable because he mostly wasn't clothed before that. And he was also in his right mind, and in response to this, they were afraid. Now those who had seen what happened, these same herdsmen, they had to describe this to the people that came from the city again, because they couldn't believe what they were seeing, they couldn't believe what they were hearing. They described what had happened to the demonized man and to the pigs, and these people all together began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demonized begged Jesus that he might be with him, that he wants to go along too. But Jesus did not permit him, but instead said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And the man did that. He went away and he began to proclaim in the Decapolis, this region of 10 cities, how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled at what Jesus had done. So I have one big point that I want to make for you today, and I thought it was worth separating this from the sermon that I preached last week, separating it from the sermon that I preached at the end of June, because I want this point to really drive home. I think this is a point that for some of us may be challenging, it may be a little bit uncomfortable, and we might find a way, if it was one of three points or one of five points, well, we would go with the other two or the other four, but we might leave this one on the field, and I'm just not going to give you room to do that today, so you're welcome. The point is this comes straight out of the story, straight out of the experience of this man who has been saved by Jesus. The point is that Jesus saves us to send us. And I'm gonna talk to you about that for the next 20 minutes or so. Now, I titled the sermon today The No That Leads to Life because for many of us, we would imagine God saying no to us as the end of something or the close of something or being cut off from something that we want or that we want to happen or that we want to have. An opportunity a healing, a deliverance, a healed marriage, a fixed relationship with our children. These are the things that we plead with God about. And I don't think any of us, if we're honest, ever comes to God asking for something and secretly hoping that he says no. I think we ask because we want him to say yes. We ask because we think if he would do this thing, that it would help us and maybe help other people. Now, the one exception to that rule might be maybe your spouse comes to you and says, hey, I've got to pick my next assignment and it's going to be Germany or it's going to be the middle of nowhere, Illinois, and we really need to pray about it and I'm really thinking it's Illinois and you're going, please God, not Illinois, but you commit. You say, I'll pray. I'll ask God to take us where he wants and maybe that's an example of a prayer you would pray hoping to get a no. I don't know, but that's, I think, maybe the one category is when you're trying to do your duty but really in your heart you don't want it to happen. Most of the time. When we take the time to pray, when we stop and intercede, it's because we want God to say yes to us. Now, we don't read the end of this story as if it's about prayer. Not really. We don't read that this man who's been set free from this demon is praying to God, but he is communicating with Jesus, and the man himself is an eternal spirit who lives in a body like all of us, and Jesus is the eternal God, the God of the Old Testament, the God of all creation, And so even though they're face-to-face on the shore of a sea in the middle of the Middle East, where most of us will never go, what they're experiencing is what's available to us in prayer. And this is not a sermon about prayer, but what I'm trying to help you understand is the way that Jesus interacts with this man is similar, almost exactly the same, to the way that God interacts with us when we pray. It's that personal, he's that available, and sometimes the thing that we want, the thing that we think makes the most sense within our Christian context, he's still going to say no to, What we're gonna find out from this story is sometimes when God says no, that no isn't just good, but it actually leads to life. It leads to the borders of God's kingdom expanding. The same kingdom that we sang about in that old, old song Martin Luther wrote about a mighty fortress is our God. We talk about the kingdom of God is forever. If we believe that, then that's the kingdom that we want to see moving and growing and expanding across the face of the planet. Sometimes God saying no to you is the way that that kingdom grows. And I can make that point to you I think pretty clearly out of this text. But let's back up for just a second because this man who's been set free from these demons, he exists in stark contrast to the rest of the people from the city. And I'm not going to re-preach last week's sermon, but just give me a couple of minutes here to remind you of what's going on in everybody else's hearts. There's one person who's present who was not already a disciple of Jesus. This man who's been delivered from these demons, he wants to go along with Jesus. Everybody else just wants Jesus to go away. Beginning in verse 14, every time the townspeople react to the exorcism of this man who was oppressed by demons, they're negative. In verse 14, they flee. In verse 15, they are afraid. In verse 17, they beg Jesus to leave. But what they witnessed was good. I mean, objectively, right? Don't we agree that if a person has been demonized and now they're not anymore, that's always a good thing? So why would they react so negatively? They saw a miracle, a literal miracle, so why would they flee? They flee and they beg Jesus to leave because from their perspective, Jesus has caused them much more loss than gain. They lost close to 2,000 pigs that day. This was their livelihood. This is the way that they fed their families, how they made their money, and it's all gone. One of the points that we drew out last week is that when Jesus saves sinners, sometimes it's costly. It's not always sort of easy believism where you just walk an aisle, pray a prayer, very little changes, and you feel better about yourself. Sometimes you actually have to give God everything. I would argue that if faith is genuine, that's always the way that it goes. We come to God, we have this kingdom, this life that we've built out of our own not good decisions and our own sin and our own deceit and our own willpower, and God demands that we lay that down not because he wants to take something good from us, but because he has to remove the life, which is the problem, to replace it with the life that's the solution. And the life that's the solution is the life of Jesus. Jesus said more than once, you can't serve two masters. He spoke regularly to his disciples about how single-minded and wholehearted a disciple of Jesus has to be. But sometimes that life that he demands from you is something that you don't want to give up. You would much rather treat the your relationship with Jesus as if he's just one more seasoning that you pour into the soup of your life. And maybe what Jesus is going to do is just make everything a little bit better, but that's not at all the way Jesus speaks about himself and is certainly not the lifestyle of the majority of Christians in human history. Now, we live in the West and we're modern people and we have a whole lot of opportunities. So maybe for many of us, the people that sit by us in church don't look like this. But in Jesus' day, and on in the rest of church history, up until about the last 150 years, most people who came to God had to give everything up to feel that they had gotten something worthwhile in return. And sometimes that can be costly. What we know as believers is, in retrospect, in hindsight, when we look in the rearview mirror of our lives, the thing that that Jesus demanded from us, the thing that we lost, it doesn't compare to what we gain. But if you're outside of that decision, if you haven't decided yet, if you haven't made your mind up about who Jesus is, then sometimes the fear of what he might take can encourage you to just not take that step, to not jump in head first, to not go for it yet, to wait a little longer, to think a little bit more, to weigh out your other options in life. For this town of people, the loss of their pigs was all they saw. They couldn't get over it. They could not reach a point where they felt that that was an okay thing for God to take from them if what they got in exchange was salvation and to know Jesus. And I believe they weren't just upset about what they had already lost. I think they were looking into their future, and they were afraid that if Jesus stayed close to them in their lives, that he might take even more from them. A helpful quote to me from a guy who lived a long time ago, a guy named Charles Spurgeon, a good theologian, a good preacher who lived in London back in the 1800s. He says this about Mark 5. He says, he who has the most objection to Christ is the person who most needs Christ, Be sure of this, if you do not desire to be converted, if you do not wish to be born again, to use Jesus' words in John chapter 3, you are the person above all others who needs to be born again. It's your not wanting it that qualifies you for needing it, in other words. Is it not a most unwise decision when, for the sake of swine, we are willing to part with Christ? When people encounter Jesus, the miracle that they need most might be so threatening that they beg Jesus to leave before he is finished doing the work that they need him to do. So that's the background. This is the kind of people that this man who's been saved comes from. These are very likely at least his in-laws, if not his parents, if not his family, his cousins, the people he grew up with. In this day and age, people did not move very far away from home. And so this is where he comes from, this is his context. These people are saying, get out of here, and what do we see from this man instead, in verse 18? He's also begging Jesus. The city is begging Jesus to go, but this man is begging Jesus to go with him. He wants to go with Jesus. He wants Jesus to insulate him, to rescue him, to protect him, to lead him, to guide him, to teach him. And I think for many of us who are Christians, this is a common experience that we've had. I don't know if you can recall when you first became a believer. I prayed a prayer of repentance when I was seven years old, but it took until I was in high school for me to make my own mind up about whether I was going to actually try to live for Jesus, whether I intended to be obedient in my life to him or not. And I remember when that began, I loved church. That was a shift for me. I had had to go to church my whole life because my dad worked at one, still works at one. But I remember in high school, something changed inside of me. You see, when we're saved by Jesus, when faith becomes genuine, we begin to love things that we used to hate. We love going to church. We can't wait to sit and hear somebody preach God's word. We like singing old songs written 500 years ago about how God is a bulwark, a word that we never use in normal conversation. We crave to know the Bible. We crave to sing God's praises. We want to be in prayer. These are things that we hate before we come to know Jesus. But here's the temptation, and I think we see it in this man's life. We are tempted as new converts in a world that is very hostile to Christianity to insulate ourselves, to submerge or immerse ourselves in Christian subculture. And to fully withdraw, not just to be people who are plugged into the living, breathing breathing body of Jesus Christ, the church, but people who actually intend to not interact with anybody who is not a Christian anymore. And I think that's a little bit of what this man wanted. He wanted to spend time with people who thought like him. He wanted to be around people who believed what he believed. He wants to be with the disciples. He wants to speak in terms that people will get. He wants to talk to other saved people about how good it is to be saved. But what does Jesus say to him? No. You have to go home. I'm sending you back home. You have to go home to your friends and you need to tell them what the Lord has done for you. You need to communicate how he has had mercy on you. Think of the people that this man has been sent back to. This is where this gets a little bit scary, okay? We all, I think we all kind of believe in missionaries. We believe that there should be missionaries somewhere to some group of people. But when Jesus decides to put his finger in our face and say, "You're the missionary," And I'm not sending you somewhere cool, where you can like have a really interesting blog and post selfies with wild animals and stuff like that. I'm just going to send you back to where you grew up. I think we start to go, oh, that doesn't really sound like mission work, or really fun, or romantic, or all that spiritual at all. It sounds terrible. Why? Because these are the people, the audience, this, the, the group of people that this man's being sent back to are people who have already decided they don't want any Jesus. They've made it clear. They were vocal. Before this guy even had a chance to say to Jesus, take me with you, already an overwhelming group of folks had come out of town and said to Jesus, go, we have collectively decided you are not welcome here. And now this man is supposed to stay behind and he has to constantly confront these people who not only have decided that they don't care about Jesus at all, but they also know his past intimately. Like part of the reason that this man is cutting himself with stones and howling at the moon and living in a graveyard is because these townspeople have rejected him. And who knows, you guys, maybe he's had a day or a week or a month at a time where he's sort of gotten his life back under control. What I'm saying to you is maybe there's been a moment in his life previously where it looked like he was getting better. And maybe people believed that. And maybe people opened themselves back up to that. And maybe he hurt them again. And now here he is, Claiming that instantly he's been healed and saved and everything is different and people are supposed to take him seriously? They're supposed to believe that this time it's different? We all know the story of the boy who cried wolf. This could be the story of the man who cried, I'm better, I'm fixed, I'm healed. We don't know. Imagine what's going to happen to him when he walks from the shore of the Sea of Galilee where he's been living in the graveyard to the first of these ten cities. Don't you think probably a couple of guys with weapons are going to meet him on the road before he can get inside the city walls? Aren't they going to have some questions for him about why he should be allowed into their city when he's been terrifying their wives and children, he's been threatening their livelihood, he's been keeping them up all night, that nobody, these people have obviously felt the need to put this man in chains before, and he just breaks them. And now they're supposed to let him come into the city and treat him like everything is normal. This is the hardest possible context for Christians in any time period is to be sent back to the people who know you best. It's one thing as a missionary to be called out by God and sent to a new context where your past is just a story that you tell. People can have empathy for that story, but that story doesn't hurt them. There's no forgiveness necessary for them to extend to you to accept your testimony. But when you go back to the place you came from where people know you and they know your baggage and maybe they're still bleeding out of wounds that you caused, that's a lot harder. That's a lot scarier. What Jesus says is this is the way. This is what I want you to do. And if we read this story and we take it at face value, we might be tempted to believe that most of the time when Jesus calls a disciple, they have the experience of the 12 apostles. And they just follow him around and they do what he does and they don't really have to face any hard parts of their past because they get to travel to new places and meet new people. But in my experience as a pastor and in my understanding of church history, that's actually the exception. The rule is this man's experience. The rule is that Jesus saves people strategically. He saves one out of a group, whether that group is a family or an office or a club or a school. And then he intends, not for that person to save anybody else, that's impossible, but for that person to live honestly in front of the people around them and communicate why they have hope, why they have peace, why they're alive, why they've been fixed. But along with all of that comes the unspoken requirement of having to face who they used to be and to become okay with other people being nervous at first, learning to forgive. This is a long process that's gonna take time in this man's life in order for him to be an effective witness. Now we know in verse 19 that Jesus calls himself Lord, and this is an important detail because he's claiming to be who the demons said that he was. He's saying, don't just go tell people what Jesus the rabbi did for you, go and communicate to them what your Lord and master did for you and tell them the story of the mercy that your Lord and Master had on you. We know then that the story that this man is telling is not just that he was saved from a demon by a nice guy, but that he's been made new and claimed by God. You remember a week ago, I tried to highlight for you in Ephesians 2 that this man, Ephesians 2 applies to this guy as well, that he is a new creation in Christ, he's been loved by God, saved by God, raised up, seated, all the stuff that Paul says happens to us as Christians. That's the testimony that he's supposed to give. Not just that he got his problems taken away, but that he's been made new in God's sovereignty. Let me ask you this question. Do you think it was an accident that Jesus showed up on the shore of the Sea of Galilee and met this man? If you take a look at Mark chapter 5, verse 21. If you don't have a Bible, I'll just read it to you. It says that Jesus crossed again in a boat to the other side of the sea, and a large crowd gathered around him, and then he was just there by the sea teaching. He goes right back to the seashore by Capernaum. The Bible records no additional stops on this journey around the Sea of Galilee. So to catch you up again, in case this isn't clear to you, this is what Jesus has chosen to do. He taught all day long, He told his disciples, we're going to get in the boat. We're going to cross the Sea of Galilee at night. Not a good idea if you're a sailor, but they go with it because he's their rabbi. On their way, worst-case scenario happens. They're hit by a storm. They land on the shore. They're exhausted. They've been up all night trying to keep their boat from capsizing. Before they can even catch their breath, a man with demons in his life comes sprinting toward Jesus, and Jesus is roaring back at him. Come out of him, you evil spirits. And the disciples are probably like, Are we even awake right now? Is this a hallucination? I don't know what's happening. The pigs kill themselves. The city rejects Jesus. Jesus tells this guy, no, you need to go back to the Decapolis. They get back on the boat. They go back to Capernaum, and it's back to things as normal. This is such a weird little vignette in the story of Jesus. There's no other ministry that we know of. I mean, sure, he builds the faith of his disciples by commanding the storm to stop. He could have done that a lot of ways. This man in Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20, seems to be the only convert Jesus makes in this journey. This is it. And I think, because I know God personally, that that's not an accident. I think that this is the whole reason that Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee, is to get this one guy, and to change his life, and then to leave him there, changed. To send him to the people from whom he came with a story to tell. If you were to fast forward in your Bible to Mark chapter 6, and you don't have to do that, you would see that about halfway through the chapter, Jesus engages with what is the largest crowd at any point in his ministry. The Bible records about 5,000 men because that's how things were back then. They didn't write down women and children who came to stuff. And so we can assume that if the 5,000 people we're only men, that there's anywhere from 10 to 20,000 people there in total. This is the famous story where Jesus sends his disciples to get food. There's a boy, he has like a lunch of dried fish and old bread, and Jesus prays over it, and it multiplies, and they feed tens of thousands of people. Church history tells us that the majority of those thousands of people came from the Decapolis. So let me help you connect the dots. Jesus crosses the Sea of Galilee, he saves a demonized man, he sends him back home, and something about that man's testimony. He never went to a how to share the gospel class, he didn't have a slick five point presentation, no theological training, no doctrinal foundation, but he simply tells people I met a man who did what no one else could do, and I think he's God. And that was enough of a hook for those people that they travel either across the Sea of Galilee or around the shore and meet Jesus, Ten to 20,000 people from these 10 cities, and they hear Jesus preach and teach. Many of them are healed. Many of them are made into disciples. Many of them are saved that day. We never see the demon-oppressed man again in Scripture. He doesn't come along to that big feast. Jesus doesn't have him up on stage and everybody claps for him because he's been such a bold example of an evangelist in his culture He simply is saved, and then he is sent, and God uses his faithfulness. Very likely, we don't know, but very likely he doesn't even know the influence that he's had. He doesn't know the difference that he's made. And God, in his perfect timing, with his perfect plan, sees his kingdom expand significantly. Because one was saved, and one was sent. We see the fruit of his obedience to Jesus. You can feel the magnitude of his faith if he just continued to tell people the truth about who Jesus was in spite of what physical or emotional pain it put him through, to have to own who he used to be and what he had. I mean, he probably still is bleeding at the wrists and ankles from the most recent chain that he wrenched in half with his brute strength. He's not cleaned up. He's not a lot better. He has a shirt on. That's good. He has pants on. That's good. But he's the same, looks like the same guy. He's just telling a story of what Jesus has done for him. He is not the hero of the story. Jesus is the hero of the story, and Jesus is the hero of your story. Jesus saved you, and I think he intends to send you. I don't know where he'll send you. For some of you, being sent probably means you live here now. For some of you, being sent, that's the neighbors that are around you on base that you didn't pick, that just happen to be assigned to be on the same street as you. For some of you, the place that you've been sent is the office. It's the homeschool co-op. It's the grocery store. It's the yoga studio. It's women's group fitness at 12 p.m. on Mondays and Wednesdays. I don't know, but Jesus intends for you to be an active participant in the expansion of his kingdom, but I also want to counter that by telling you, because I know I'm a millennial, and we hear evangelism, and we get, I don't know about that. I'm not trying to shove anything in anybody's throat. All we do is tell our story, my friends. Think back to Mark, excuse me, John chapter 4. The woman at the well, she meets Jesus. Problems are fixed. She goes into town. Her testimony is one sentence. I met a man who knows everything about me. That's it. That alone sets him apart from every other person who's ever existed and is enough of a hook for people to want to come and meet that Jesus. You have been saved. You have a story to tell. You don't have to memorize any Bible verses to tell that story. You can, and maybe God will lead you to do that. That would not be a waste of your time. But your simple testimony of who you were dead before and who you are now alive is enough. You don't have to be able to answer people's questions. All right, you're not gonna find yourself in a debate on stage at a college campus against a well-known atheist. You're simply gonna be communicating with a person that you probably already have a relationship about how you have hope and they can too. And you have problems and so do they, but you found a solution that they don't know about yet. And if they say, no thank you, then okay. Not everybody from the Decapolis came to meet Jesus, but some of them did. And how many of them would have come if the man had said, no Jesus, I'm not gonna do what you said. I'm going I'm to get in the water and swim behind your boat, and I'm going to swim all the way across the Sea of Galilee, and I'm going to force my way into your presence, and I'm going to get what I want from you. There probably would be no feeding of the 5,000. And you know what? God would still be God, and the gospel would still be the gospel. But we have an opportunity, my friends. We have a chance by our simple willingness, our participation, to see the kingdom of God expand. I don't care how many people come to this church But you and I better care about whether the people around us know Jesus or not. If we don't care about that, everything else we're doing as Christians is a waste of time. You've been given the solution. You have been introduced to the grace of God. Participate in that. Play that role. I bet you'll never gather a crowd of 10,000. And I bet if you do, nobody will be able to multiply fish and bread, and it probably won't turn into a new book of the Bible, okay? But probably what will happen is one or two people will say, you're the first Christian I've ever met who's not mostly angry or mostly weird. I don't know, some of you maybe not, okay, but hopefully, hopefully, hopefully. That's most of our reputation, like watch an episode of The Simpsons, okay, Ned Flanders is either mad or weird, that's it, and that's what most people know of Christianity, I'm just telling you, you have a chance to be different, you have a chance to be a person who's changed, you are a person who's changed, just open your mouth once in a while, share that, share that story, and who knows, who knows where Jesus will send you, and who knows who will be impacted by your story. I want to encourage you to just think on that, just chew on that idea, whether you believe that Jesus has saved you to send you. Now, one of the places, here's my slick segue, you ready? One of the places that Jesus always sends a new disciple is to a local church, and this is a local church. And one of the people that God has sent to us at this local church to serve us and to know us and to help shepherd and care for us is Jim Singleton. So today, we're going to use the rest of our time this morning, just another 10 or 15 minutes, to ordain, to lay our hands on, to pray for, to acknowledge and to covenant with Jim and Roz Singleton. You've already appointed Jim as an elder, so if you're new to the church, we've made that decision. But this is our chance to spiritually acknowledge what God is doing in his life and welcome him into this role. So Jim and Roz, I don't know where you guys are in the room, but if you're willing, would you come up? I'm gonna have you sit in these chairs. This is the way we do this, okay? I'm gonna move to the side, I'm gonna keep talking but I'm gonna to move to the side and I'm gonna ask Jim and Roz to sit in these chairs and they're gonna face you guys. And all the introverts in the room are going, I will never be an elder ever, 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 never, ever, no matter what in my life. But I want you guys to see each other because eldership is not a one-way street, okay? I speak from experience. This doesn't work if you guys don't want it to. We are not the government. We don't exist to force you to do what we think is right. We are here to represent you to care for you, to pray for you, to check in on you. Every single time an elder, whether they work for the church or they're a layperson, every time an elder has to pick the phone up and call somebody because something is wrong, we're nervous. We don't assume you're gonna just submit. We don't really want you to do that. We wanna know what's going on. We wanna connect with you and we need your permission, we need your participation to be able to care for you. If a local church became a group of men who call themselves elders who beat the sheep up every week and force their way into their lives and try to control them, it would stop looking like Jesus. And it would, be, it would be, it should shut down, it should close. It would be a waste of time. What we want is mutual relationship, and so I'm going to speak in those terms to you guys. We're going to do what we call ordination. Ordination is just kind of a modern term for what the Bible calls consecration. It means to call somebody out, to select them, to set them aside for specific service. Essentially, what we're doing is just setting Jim apart today, okay? I want you to understand he didn't get a spiritual promotion. Uh, He's just just doing his best to serve. He's not better than the rest of us. He's not loved more by God than the rest of us are. He doesn't get a free pass on his character because he now wields some authority in the church. He's simply being set apart. And we appointed him, but today we're going to ordain him, and we're going to honor he and his wife Roz by focusing our attention and our prayers on them, and by marking this day and marking his role at True North in a way that hopefully all of us will remember for a very long time. So Jim, you know this, but today we set you apart as a shepherd, what the Bible calls an overseer of God's people. And in Paul's first letter to Timothy, he prescribes the work of ministry that an overseer or an elder does. He says this, beginning in verse 1. The saying is trustworthy that if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he does a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. He must be the husband of one wife. He must be sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must, in addition, manage his own household well. With all dignity, keep his children in submission. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit, and he may fall into the condemnation of the devil." Moreover, in verse 7, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, which is a snare of the devil. Fifteen things that you have to do all the time. And really, fifteen ways that you have to be. If we read into this, it's not so much these are actions to take, these are characteristics of a person. Church, we've examined Jim, we've considered these fifteen metrics for whether or not he's qualified to be an elder, And we have found Jim qualified and prepared for the office that he now holds. We, as the elders of your church, wholeheartedly believe that he meets the expectations laid out in Scripture and that he will continue to do so because he relies on the mercy of God. He relies on the way of Jesus and how he decides what he's going to do, who he's going to be, how he's going to spend his time. So church, we do four things, and I'm going to move quickly here, okay? Four things when we ordain an elder. First, we empower an elder by our participation. So this is the thing I mentioned to you a minute ago. We cannot qualify Jim. We can't disqualify Jim. This is God's business. God has chosen him to be an overseer. What we can do is we can publicly affirm that choice. And what you can do is you can communicate to that overseer and to the rest of us that you are willing to be overseen, that you're not going to fight that. You're not going to kick against it. You don't hate that idea. That's not so scary to you that you're going to resist, but you're going to welcome a loving pastor, a loving shepherd in your life to care and to know you and to walk alongside you. As members of this church, by ordaining Jim, we are saying to him and to each other that we believe that it is good and that it is right for him to expect our participation in the life of this church and that we will submit to his leadership as long as he leads in a way that honors Jesus. That's his responsibility. Number two, we acknowledge him by our appreciation. It's fun that we get to ordain an elder during Pastor Appreciation Month. You guys heard about that last week. Our deacons are going out of their way to acknowledge us as elders. That's a great honor. We appreciate that they're doing that. But we would like, you know, to honor our elders. And I speak as a church member here. These guys are my elders too. We'd like to honor them all 12 months out of the year. You know, just go figure. That'd be cool. Not just one, not just October. Much of what Jim will do for us as a church will go unnoticed. You'll never know. Unless you're the person in crisis who has to make that phone call into whose life Jim parachutes saying to Roz, I don't know when I'll be back. I don't know how long it'll take. I love you. I'm sorry, but I'm also not because this is my call and her having to support him and let him go and pray for him and hold sensitive information and keep it safe, you'll never know because Jim will be here Sunday anyway and he'll make coffee like he normally does anyway and he'll shake your hand anyway and he'll be kind to you anyway. He won't dump all that on you. He won't unload it on his life group because this is a calling on his life we have an opportunity as church members to appreciate our elders even when we're not sure what they've been up to. And you can always ask, it's not a secret, but we need that as elders. We need to know that you want us to keep doing what we're doing because we don't wanna create a rift between our leadership and our membership. Jim, I think you know this by now, but if you don't, here you go, you will never be able to rely on the praise of people to sustain your leadership and your service. It's not gonna be enough, we can't clap loud enough. how you're going to serve us and what you're going to do. Church, by extending our thanks to him, we not only thank him for willingly submitting to the examination and training process that he went through, we also acknowledge that every good choice that he will make on our behalf is going to cost him something. And it's going to cost him something so it doesn't cost us as much. It's going to be his time, his effort, his character, stress on his life so that he can help us with our problems. We will never be able to repay that debt. We shouldn't try, but we can certainly appreciate when an elder is going before us and coming alongside of us. Number three, we authorize an elder by our invitation. Each of us who submits to membership at True North invites the influence of the elders of this church. Our elders understand their responsibility to be that of pastors. That's really all we think of ourselves as. We care for the spiritual needs of the congregation. We teach the word of God accurately and with love in our hearts for you. And we maintain the theological boundaries of the church. To carry that kind of authority is not something you can teach someone to do. You can't learn enough church history, you can't read enough books on doctrine to become a gentle and wise leader. In order to lead well, you have to be followed well. It's mutual. It's a two-way street. You and I invite Jim's influence into our lives, into our marriages, into our careers, and into our children's futures by authorizing him to carry himself like an elder. Not to lord it over us, Jesus says that's the way unsaved people lead. But to assume that it's okay for him to check on us to assume that it's okay for him to reach out with a call, with a text, with an email. Are you okay? I noticed you haven't been around. You seem down. That's not probing, it's not prying, it's not an invitation for you to start performing like things are better. It's a chance for you to have a pastor in your life who loves you, help you with whatever it is that's going wrong. That invitation into our lives is the practical authorization that Jim will need when we are in sin, when we are wounded, when we feel stuck in the darkness of our own self-destructive tendencies and we need a pastor to reach out to us. It takes a covenant people to stay close to each other when life's problems seem impossible to solve. It is in those moments that God oftentimes sends an elder. And it is in those moments that we will need Jim to remember that we authorized him to carry that role in our lives. And as painful as it may be, that he is authorized to help us fight to keep Jesus at the center. Finally, we care for Jim by our intercession. We must never become a people who misunderstand the mutuality of the offices of the local church. Both elders and deacons could be, I guess, in a way considered more than a covenant member, but they're never less than a covenant member. What I mean by this is that Jim has the same needs that you have. Jim is tired like you are tired. Jim is susceptible to profound selfishness in the same way that you are. He can become embarrassed. He can become self conscious. He is also unsure of himself. He also sometimes fears what other think of, others think of him, just like you do. In addition to serving the church, Jim recently began a very busy and very full retirement season. He has a covenant with Roz to belong to her, to give his life to her. With his children and his grandchildren, he even has his own set of baggage that he has to surrender to Jesus on a daily basis receiving the assurance of Jesus' supremacy over all of his circumstances in return. What I'm trying to say to you, church, is Jim is an elder, yes, but he is also just a man. He is a leader, he is a teacher whose legacy at True North will outlive all of us, but he's also mortal, he's also fallible, he's also finite, he's limited. He can't do everything for everybody all the time. And so he needs your care. He doesn't just need to be a figurehead. He doesn't need to always be out front. Occasionally, he needs you to check on him too. He needs you to pray for him by name, aggressively, on a daily basis. That's the best thing you can do as a church member for your elders is just pray for us. Ask God to do his will. Ask God to restore our spirits to fill us back up when we've spent all day long trying to solve people problems which often seem like they have no solution. I'm gonna invite a group of people to come up who are also mortal infallible, fallible and finite as well as I land the plane here. Uh, our active and inactive elders, those who've been ordained and their wives, you guys are welcome. I'll just tell you, church, uh, earlier this morning, we all got to meet with Jim and Roz couple by couple and lay hands on them and pray for them. We're gonna do that now in front of you and just invite you to participate from where you're seated. But I want you to know that we have to intercede. Don't just think nice thoughts about Jim. Pray for Jim. Don't just wish Jim well when you see him. Pray for Jim. Pray to him. Speak to God about Jim Singleton. Let his name come out of your mouth when you are with God in prayer. Lift him up, ask for peace in his life. That's what we're gonna do now. Okay, I'm gonna lead all of us in a prayer for Jim and for Roz, for his eldership, for their family, for their future. And as we do that, I would invite you where you are to participate with us by praying as well. When we're done, I'll say amen, I'll dismiss you, and then if you wanna come by and say hey to Jim and Roz, we're gonna let them come down off the stage, so it's not weird, but you can come and give them a hug, maybe pray for them, let them know that you appreciate them, and we'll take it from there. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the way that you have built churches out of people. I pray that that's what this church will always be, is a people, not a building, not a structure, not an organization, not a specific set of teaching, not a great bunch of programs, but people, real people. We come to you now, Father, humbled. None of this really has anything to do with us except that you decided it did have something to do with us. You have pulled us in on what you are doing cosmically, universally, inside of time and outside of time. It is the most amazing, almost science fiction thing to try to wrap my head around of who you are and what you're doing and what you're up to. And for whatever reason, you've allowed a couple of hundred people here in Anchorage, Alaska, just one of many churches, to participate in this thing that you thought of that you created, that you have ordained, and God, that you are supplying. You have been so good to us to give us elders who are qualified and ready. I pray, God, that we would steward that well, specifically for Jim and Roz, God. I pray for their children. I don't know if all of their children have trusted you and follow you or not, but God, I pray that if they have, you would keep them close, and if they have not, that you would call them to yourself. I pray for each of their grandchildren, Father, that they would be saved, that it would be the joy of Jim and Roz's life to get that phone call at at about 8 o'clock at bedtime or after a week of VBS or on a Sunday afternoon that one of their grandsons or granddaughters has chosen to give their life to you and follow you forever. We pray for their marriage, God, that you would keep it strong, that you would make them honest and open with one another. I pray for the rest of our elders that we would be close to Jim and Roz, that we would see when things are going wrong and be prepared to help, that we would be close when things are going well and be an encouragement to them. And I pray, God, for our whole team of elders, that you would bind us together, draw us closer and closer all the time, and let us do your work here. Thank you, Father, for Jesus. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for a church. Thank you for great leaders, and God, thank you for great members. We love, love, love to be a part of what you're doing at True North. We trust you with our future. We thank you for the chance to be a part of what you're doing, God, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, thanks, church. It was great to worship with you today. You guys are dismissed.